As everybody's heading back to their seat, I'm going to pray really quick. So, Father, we've gathered on this day, this dreary day. <laughs> and, Lord, I pray that you would, uh, as we study your word, as we, as we look into your word, Lord, that you would reveal to us what it is that you want us to see and that we would uh, hear from you. And we thank you uh, for your love for us and that you put your love within us. And I just pray that you would uh, speak to our hearts and change our lives in your precious name. We also pray that you would speak to the kids as they study this passage um, in Maranatha Kids, Lord, that they would understand and experience who you are and help us all become more aware of your presence and experience the glory of your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, guys, it's an interesting day to be so rainy and dreary because we've been journeying through the book of Mark for the last so many months, and uh, we're on Mark 15 today, which is, you know, kind of the Good Friday time where Jesus dies, or we, we, it talks about Jesus actually dying on the cross, and um, I want to thank everybody. The last couple of weeks, we've had different people in our church be sharing, you know, it just kind of schedule-wise worked out that way, and everybody did great, and it was really beneficial for me to sit back and listen to hear other people talk about, you know, God's Word, because this isn't something that only certain people can do, you know. It's not something that everybody has to do, you know, like Janelle said, standing up in front of people is not something most people enjoy, so that doesn't matter. But the idea of understanding what what the Bible says and, and talking to everybody about or sharing that with people is something we can all do, and everybody has a different take, you know, it's kind of like everybody sees different things and... Um, it was just really blessing to me to sit back for the last couple of weeks. And it's interesting because we're about to get into this Christmas time and talk about, you know, Jesus coming. But we've been studying Jesus for the book of Mark, and we're about to go into kind of the Easter parts this week and next week. And then we're going to immediately kind of jump into Jesus coming. And you'll be like, well, if you're paying, it seems a little like a record skipping or something. But in a, in a way, as Christian people, this is kind of always what we talk about. And... Uh, I thought a lot about this week because I had a lot of weeks because other people were preaching. And uh, this story that you find in Mark of Jesus dying on the cross is it's, it's, it's an interesting thing because it's so familiar to us as Christian people. Like, honestly, as I'm reading it, I'm like, I've read these words so many times that I've almost kind of memorized them. You're, many of you are the same way. You're like, well, and there's kind of a been there, done that quality to it sometimes. But... I was thinking about how familiar yet unfamiliar this whole thing was. And also, this, uh, like, what would I have been like? I think if I had been there when this whole thing was happening, I would have been very surprised and confused and uh, filled with wonder, I guess, kind of like the people in this story are. And so I just wanted to work, just go through it as it says it. And I'm going to try my best to stick to what Mark includes. We've talked, Mark as a book is written quickly and they just jam a whole lot of stuff in there. And like some of these chapters would have like eight things, which each one of those things could be something we could talk about for the whole time. But instead there's eight and we're like, do, 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 do. And it's written that way on purpose. And it's kind of like earlier this year when we went through the book of Exodus, there's a whole lot of stuff we know about Moses and the stuff that Moses and then did, but that's in Numbers and they didn't include it in Exodus. It's obviously part of the Bible. But if you want to say, we're going to study Mark, there's a lot of things that, Mark doesn't include that the other Gospels do. Again, they're all good, and that's all good stuff. But uh, we're trying to stick to what just Mark says, but I'm going to have to sneak some other things in there because it's just the way, you know, the brain works. But Andy finished last week 
which was all about Jesus being arrested. And then Jesus was taken before uh, the officials. They're like, what did this guy do? And they're trying to figure out some way to get him in trouble, and they're having a hard time with that. And if, if you remember last week we read in Mark 14, 62, um, they are trying to figure or like in Mark 14, really, like they're trying to figure out different things. Like, what can we say? Like, he's, so some people say, well, yeah, he said he was going to tear the temple down and da-da-da, but then they're like, but their stories didn't even line up. And finally, they're trying to be like, all right, let's just get straight to it. And you're like, are you the Messiah or not? You know, they ask him this. And in 1462, he says, I am. That's his answer. They're like, are you the Messiah? He's like, yeah, I am, which is true. And straight up to the point in their face. And it echoes exactly what we saw in the book of Exodus when God, when Moses asked God, what's, like, what's your name? Who's sending me to, you know, what, what if they ask me who your name is? He's like, my name is I am. That's what the English version, it really is like, I'll be who I'll be, or I am who I am, or that sort of thing. I exist. He's just, I am God. Jesus says this. They know what he's saying, too. That's, he wouldn't, <laughs> that wouldn't slip by. These guys were attentive. They would have gone, wait a minute, you know, and they get mad. And you will see that Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming in the clouds of heaven. Again, straight up just tells them the truth. And at that point, they all freak out and say, oh, my gosh, nobody can claim to be this except for if he was, you see. But they missed that part. They're assuming certainly he's not the Messiah because we don't like him. And we would like the, you know, if God came, we would like that, right, always. And assuming because he obviously I don't like this guy. He's threatening me. So, you know, threatening to me, not literally threatening me. You know, you, you said I'm saying. And so they decide, okay, well, let's take him. So they take him over to Pilate, who's like the kind of government official of the area, right? And they need him to help them deal with this situation. And so that's where we find ourselves in chapter 15, verse 1. And I'm just going to read and offer some commentary as we go through. Verse 1, very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin, that's all those guys that we were just talking about, made their plans. So they bound Jesus and led him away and handed him over to Pilate. And then, again, this is a condensed version. Are you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. Which, again, he's like, yes, I am. Telling the truth. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate said, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they've accused you of? But Jesus made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. So here's a government official that's kind of in charge of the area. He's confused by what Jesus is doing. Jesus has been now betrayed by his friends. A lot of his followers have left. Even Peter, who said he'd never betray him, he's gone. And Jesus is all alone. He's been kind of falsely accused by these um, religious officials and then led in front of the government official and he's like like aren't you going to address any of this stuff like and Jesus won't do it because a lot of the stuff they're saying probably is actually true like he's claiming to be the messiah and he's like so are you and he's like yeah I am and he's like well what's the pro like <laughs> what's the problem you know and <clears throat> what the issue is and this is the kind of thing that I talk about like being confused and in wonder and surprised is Jesus is exactly who he's saying he is. He's been doing this the entire time. And you remember several times he told Peter and all the guys, he's like, hey, I'm going to have to go and die, you know, in Jerusalem. They're like, hey, you know, a little less of that would be good for the whole marketing thing. You know, like this is going well. You're healing people. Now you talk about dying. Let's not do that. You know, that kind of thing. And <laughs> he's been telling them the whole time that this is necessary, that it needs to happen. And but and Jesus is doing, he's doing exactly what the king, the king of the universe is supposed to be doing. But it doesn't look like what everybody thought. And I have to be honest that if I was there, I probably wouldn't have looked like what I would have thought either. 
But some people are picking up on things. Like Pilate's kind of amazed. He's like, I'm not sure he's saying, I get it. You're the savior of the world and da-da-da-da. But he's like, whoa, this is not a normal person I'm dealing with here. So Pilate thinks, okay, I got a plan, you know, because he's also got a, he's scared. Like the guy's in charge of the area. If things go bad in his area, he gets in trouble from the Roman people, all this kind of thing. So he's like, okay, I got it. I figured it out. Okay. So at this Passover feast, which is what's going on, normally they release a prisoner. And so he's like, I know what I'll do. I'll pick a really, really bad guy and Jesus, who I don't really have a problem with, and set them side by side. He's like, okay, pick which one of these people you want, you know? And he's like, of course, they'll pick the, you know, Jesus, because what's this guy? He's just saying he's the Messiah or something like that. Like, that's not a big deal. And this guy's, this guy's like, killed people and stuff. So surely they won't pick him. But the, uh, the chief priests and everybody see what he's up to, and they stir up everyone, and they get him to pick the actual bad guy over Jesus to be freed. And so Pilate kind of, he tries a little sneaky thing to figure that, to work that out. It doesn't work. And it's kind of this, you start to see, it's like the way we all behave when I want this to be somebody else's fault. <laughs> and I don't want to, you know, I want to do, I, I, feel, I, I feel stuck, so I'm going to try to blame it on somebody else and get somebody, but they're kind of wise to it. And they, they basically trick him in a way by having everybody pick an actual bad guy over Jesus, which is the kind of thing that we do internally often when we're tempted to do something wrong. You can kind of see this in like a mini parable sort of way that so how often we just pick the bad guy <laughs> over Jesus, you know, in our own lives. Everyone's blaming everybody else, thinking they're fooling everyone. And in verse 12, he says, what shall I do then with the one you call king of the Jews? He's like, fine, if you don't want me to release him, what should I do? And they say, crucify him, which is a big deal. Like, that's like, kill him in a horrible public way, is what they said back. And he's like, well, in verse 14, why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate? But they shouted louder, crucify him. And wanting to satisfy the crowd, there it is, the crowd pleaser, Pilate released the bad guy to them, Barabbas is his name, and he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So you know, he has the authority, but he's scared. And so to appease the crowd, he just does this thing. And then you start to see this other thing, the soldiers. So now Jesus has been handed over to be crucified, which is unjust, it's wrong, it's horrible, and flogged, which if you've seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, it's not, this is all terrible stuff. And again, there's a familiarity we have with this, but an unfamiliarity as well. And then the soldiers mocked Jesus. They led Jesus away. This is verse 16. The soldiers led Jesus away into the place that is the praetorium. And called together the whole company of soldiers. These are the Roman guys now. They put a purple robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they all began to call out to him, Hail the king of the Jews. And again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him, like mock worship. And, they made, and when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him and they led him to crucify him. And they're, they're insulting Jesus. And there's an anti-Semitic quality to this whole thing. Like, these aren't Jewish people at this point. So they're like, oh, this is y'all's king, you know. This is like really dark, evil stuff. It's the kind of stuff that comes out of us when we just pile on people online and stuff. It's the same sort of spirit, the same sort of idea. You're like, I'm just like going to, the worst part of it, doing the worst possible things, the most mocking things, horrible things. But they're doing them to the Son of God. And the things they're saying are actually true. 
Hail the king of the Jews. They're just mocking him. Because there's this thing that what Jesus is doing and what he's saying about himself is true. And he knows it. But it doesn't feel like it's true. Maybe to everybody else. Because these guys are saying something that's true, but it's fun to make fun of Jesus this way to them because they think it's so obviously not true, right? Or if it is true, it's so meaningless because they hate Jewish people so much that they're just like, yeah, this is your king. It's like that kind of stuff. Dark, dark stuff. And then it goes on. The crucifixion. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way to the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Typically, the people, they were going to be crucified. And this is what this cross is here to represent. They would carry at least the, the, the center part. A lot of times, the vertical part was already in the ground. It, I don't, they don't say exactly. He might have carried the whole thing. It doesn't, but normally, the, cru- the people that were going to be crucified have to carry that part out there with, by themselves as part of the shame of the whole thing. But Jesus was so beaten up from this mistreatment that he's experienced that he can't even do it, so they have somebody else do it. And if you remember, there's, when Jesus is saying, if you want to be my follower, remember when all his guys wanted to be great? I want to be great and be like you, Jesus. Can't you make me awesome and make me in charge of something? And he's like, no, serve other people. Be like the kids. Take up your cross and follow me. And you're like, what are you? And when there's finally a chance to kind of actually literally do some of that, they're not there, and they have to find a random guy to do it, you know? And there is some symbolism in all of this that's supposed to be picked up on. They weren't there. The ones that claimed they would be there to actually do this aren't. And there's more judgment. You know, we'll get in a second. So they brought Jesus to the, to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, and he did not take it. And that was something that might help with the, the pain or something like that. And he said, no. And they crucified him. They divided up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. And it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. And they'd written a notice of the charge against him. It read, King of the Jews, which means they hung that above him. King of the Jews. Again, this is a sign hanging above him. Some of the other gospels talk about that it was in different languages and stuff. Like this was Pilate kind of in a way getting back it's hard to know what everybody's thinking at this point. Is he getting back at these Jewish officials be like, okay, this is your king? Or is he mocking him? Like, is this his version of mockery like the soldiers? Like, okay, well, this is, this is what the king of the Jews looks like. He's this thing. And the sad thing, the terrible thing about it is it's absolutely true. It's the right sign. But it feels completely like a joke or like a mockery or like a ridiculousness and just offensive in every way that it can be. It was absolutely true, but it didn't feel true. They, they, they felt so untrue that they felt like totally fine doing it. Because what is this guy going to do, you know? So they crucified him with two rebels. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Other, other gospels have stories about that interaction. This does not. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you're going to destroy the temple and build it in three days? Come down from the cross and save yourself. You say you're God, then do something God would do according to what I think God should do, huh? Prove it to me, you know? Do what God does on my terms. You know, you're not in charge of anything. Come down and save yourself. And in the same way, the chief priests, these are like the religious guys who should have known what was up, The chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him. 
among themselves. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified him, those crucified with him, he heaped insults on him as well. Again, they're saying more things that are true about Jesus, but they didn't feel true. They felt so untrue that they felt confident in saying these things to him, even though he was the true king. And he had said the whole time that I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this thing. And they just, they couldn't see it. He's the only one who could see it. And again, the other gospels have more details about the things that happened in these times, but we're just going to keep moving on. And this is verse 33. It says, the death of Jesus. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. That would get some attention to me, I would feel like. If I was there, I'd be like, I don't, this is not normal. You know, um, that's why it's in here. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is a quote from Psalm 22, which I'm going to read at the end, because it tells about this whole time and what's God, what God is doing and why he's doing it and all that sort of thing. The stuff that Andy talked about, that all since the very, very beginning of the Bible and the story of humankind, where sin enters the world and it breaks everything, and God makes a promise. He's like, yes, this world is broken. There's something wrong with this world. But I'm going to come back and fix it. And this guy, this, this devil that has now deceived everyone, he's, he's deceiving everyone. He's destroying everything. But there's one day I'm going to come, and I'm going to destroy him. And he's going to hurt me, but I'm going to crush him. And it's going to be over. And it's happening now. And that psalm addresses that, and we'll get to that. But when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's feeling this abandonment of even God. There's plenty of scriptures, including that one. It's like God doesn't abandon us, but there's times we feel abandoned, that we don't feel like God's right. Like, you know, again, the truth and then what it feels to be true. How many of you have had a bad day where you felt completely abandoned, you know? 35, when some standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Some ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone and see if Elijah comes to take him down. This is an interesting thing to me. Um, Elijah, which Jesus had already said, because there was expectation that when the Messiah comes, Elijah's going to come. And Jesus had already said, that's John the Baptist. They'd already killed John the Baptist. Elijah, the Elijah they're talking about, like he's already gone. And there's like this ultimate, like from a human perspective, layers of ultimate failure, you know, like completely. But then I always, when I was reading this, it stuck out to me, you know, there's mockery in this. There's always like this hint of, well, let's see what happens, you know. It's like they can't quite get themselves to fully just, you know, they'll mock all day and boast and, you know, pile on online and attack people. But then all of a sudden there's this like, well, let's see, let's see what happens, you know. The door's never completely shut. And I have that hope for a lot of people, especially the most brag, like the people online that are blah, about God and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, there's this little piece left that they're like, let's see if Elijah comes, you know. In verse 37, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And then 38, the, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. In other, uh, in other Gospels, there's an earthquake that happens when this happens. But it's the temple, the temple, the, the tabernacle that we saw in the book of Exodus where God says, my presence is going to go with you. But I'm holy, so you've got to have some things that we do to keep 
my holiness from wiping out your whole existence. So one of the things we're going to do is set up this tabernacle, and it's going to represent heaven and represent the coming of, like, it represented a lot of things symbolically, but one of the parts of it was this curtain. And in Exodus, he describes, like, this is exactly the curtain I want built. And then later, then they made the temple. They did a bigger version of it, and the same thing, the temple that we're dealing with now. But the idea was that, like, there's a holy place where God's presence, the presence of God, God's presence is supposed to be and is. And one of, the, one of the symbols in all this is that we as human beings, when we chose sin over God, it chose the bad guy, you know, like we get separated from God. And this is the action that Jesus is doing, surprise to everybody, is reconnecting us with God's presence in a way that people didn't foresee totally. That's why that curtain is ripped. He's like, no, we don't need this anymore. But it was also a judgment on the religious leaders of the time. Like we saw a couple chapters ago when Jesus said, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, and you've turned it into a den of robbers. Like, this is not even what I was about. The presence wasn't in there. It wasn't like when it ripped back, it was like, oh, the glory of God, and we're all melting like in Indiana Jones. It's like there's nothing in here at this point. You see what I'm saying? And he's saying, we don't need this anymore because now I've come to be within you. And there was a certain centurion. Remember, they're like, let's see if a lot. So this is just a soldier. We don't know what he did. We don't know if he was a part of those guys that were mocking Jesus just a little while ago. We don't know any of that. But he's there, and he's, in, he's just a Roman guy doing his job, I guess. And they're crucifying somebody. This is what he says, verse 39. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. He says, saw how he died. That's why he said that. Again, the other Gospels, you know, perhaps it was the darkness, like we heard. Three hours of darkness would make me go, this is not normal. This doesn't normally happen when we do these sorts of things. Or maybe it was this earthquake. Or maybe it was, like in the other Gospels, it talks about how Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus is forgiving these people that are killing him and mocking him. He's saying these words. Or, like the other Gospels talk about, there's these two guys on the cross, and one of them says, hey, remember me when you go into your kingdom, you know, and he says, I will. You're going to be with me today in paradise, this kind of thing. And I'm sure this guy's watching all this stuff. And he's like, I don't know, guys. This is a, seems like the Son of God to me, right? You know? But that's against the grain of what was going on at the time. And when he saw how Jesus died, and what is that? I, I put down this. Jesus chose, because they were saying, if this is really the Messiah, then save yourself. As if that's something the real Messiah should do. All right, if you're really God, then save yourself. And he's been saying the whole time, I'm not here to save myself. I'm here to save you. And that's what Jesus does. He doesn't choose to save himself. He chooses to save us. And he's doing it in a way that we can't, we don't get yet. And nobody was totally with him on this yet. He had to do it by himself. Jesus knew that this action he was taking would undo the damage and brokenness that was done by evil and sin. And that's so big and complex. We could talk about that. We do talk about it. We will talk about it for a long, forever, you know. But nobody else got it. They were mocking it or confused. And there was a few people that were starting to catch on. And, for, and it, what's interesting is this guy, he's not even Jewish. He's a Roman centurion. And he's like, I, I know who that is. I know who, like, that's... That sign is right. I know, this guy, you know, I'm not saying, I don't know if he's like saved or whatever. I don't know how, whatever, you can work that out yourself. My point is, he got the memo. 
He was suddenly was like, I know who this is. I saw how he died, and I know who this is. And I think that the, the thing is, people didn't see. Well, let, let me read you this. This is in Colossians 2, okay? This is Paul talking about what Jesus was doing at this time. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. When, when you were dead, meaning us, in your sins and in your uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. This is what Jesus is doing right now on the cross. Does it look like that? Does it feel like that? It feels like failure, but this is what he was doing. By canceling the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us in the sight of God and the sight of everyone. And he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. He chose to save us, not himself. And ha- Now, here's the thing. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them with the cross. Does this feel like a triumph at all? Jesus was, if you read back, you could just go through the book of Mark and look at all the headings. Jesus says this. Jesus declared, you know, declares himself Messiah. Jesus heals, you know, the, the, the demon. Like, again, again, we all remember, there was a bunch of, Jesus drives out demons. Jesus drives out more demons. Jesus heals a little girl or brings it back like a dead little girl. And then he heals another woman. He heals all these people. He heals a blind guy. He heals other people. You know, he's healing all these people. He feeds 5,000 people. He walks on water. He combs the storms. You're like, well, that sounds like God's stuff. And then it's like, and then Jesus is killed by people, by us. You know, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Remember I said that at the very beginning of this whole thing? You know, what would Jesus do? Or, you know, what would Jesus have me do? This is what Jesus did. If God was here, what would he do? He did it. That's what God would do. And he would do the thing where he would choose to give up his life for everybody else. And not save himself. And he's inviting us to take that life that he's given us and then do the same thing. To give our lives for everybody else. Not just save ourselves. And it requires a transition that's some, which we would call salvation. You know, it's a changing. There's a changing that happens within us to do that sort of thing. I'm going to keep moving on just because... But the thing is, the people that were, there was religious authorities in this story, right? There was political authorities in this story, and they didn't realize that they were being disarmed and made spectacle of. Or maybe they did. I don't know. I think they did. Because the, the reason they get so boisterous about, you know, hey, you, you know, threatening him in all these particular ways, there's like religious authorities. And this is the kind of thing that like, I might have been, I don't know, I hope I wouldn't have been one of these guys, but I might have been. Like, it could have been scary. Like, this Jesus guy is showing up and he's disrupting this thing we do, and I don't like it, because this is how I like, you know, this is like my deal, and you're kind of coming in. Or You know, some people use this religious stuff to control people, or have power over people. And sometimes, like back in this time, like, you were like, you know, you were important. You were an important person, you know what I mean? And they didn't like that what Jesus was doing was disrupting that. And the, and the, and the, the, Political people the same way. Like, they're in charge. You have to be afraid of them. Or you know what? They might kill you. And so Jesus shows up, and he's like, okay, then kill me. But they don't know that next week when we get in, that he's going to come back. 
Like, they're like, yeah, they killed him. Like, for real killed him. Like, they did the thing they wanted to do, and he let them do it to him because he knew he's like, you, you don't win that way. I win, <laughs> but it's a different way. And I'll show you, like, I'll let you even do it all because it just shows how bad all this stuff is that you're trying to do. The religious control, the political controller, that weird demonic hybrid of both, you know, reader be warned. But the things people do on behalf of God to hurt other people, these were being made spectacle of. But the thing is, it's not like we expect a similar thing. Like we, we always like the idea of Jesus coming to destroy our enemies. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the bad people that I don't like, you know, come and destroy them. That would be great, you know. And instead he like comes and allows them to mistreat him. And you're like, I don't this does see how this is a familiar story, but it just confounds every way of thinking. He's like, why did you let them do this to you? They're the bad guys. I don't even understand. He's like, I'm fixing everything. You're like, but how? You're getting killed. You know, and to the point that everybody's gone, except for not everybody. Verse 40, some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed, had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem were there also. They, they also got the memo. They'd been following Jesus. The disciples had all fled. You know, some of the Gospels have John. I mean, the, again, whatever. The point he was trying to make is not everybody had forsaken him. There was somebody they were following at a distance. But they knew this, he's not, this, they hadn't given up on him. All right? Even at the lowest of the lowest of the low, when none of this made any sense, they were still there. And that should give us some hope because the story is about to take a strange, unpredicted turn, except for we all know the answer. But you got to go there. And then there's the burial of Jesus. I mean, this is like a thing to think about, like that title in your Bible, the burial of God, that God died. God chose to die for us. You could think about that for forever. And they buried it. And this is an interesting thing. It was the preparation day, the day before the Sabbath. So, every, so as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he, had already, he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. And when he learned the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of the rock, and he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary... Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is why I say it's like the Good Friday message. It ends in Jesus in the tomb. And this is the thing. Joseph, Joseph is a member of the Sanhedrin. So he's one of those religious authority guys, you know. And he kind of steps out of line. He's like, hey, you know what? Because what, when, when people were, Justin, you guys can come on up here. When, when the criminals were killed on crosses, it was supposed to be a spectacle. And as you can see, the mockery and everything. But they were supposed to be, like, left there. And it was supposed to be, like, a threat to people. Like, you know, you do this kind of stuff, this is the kind of stuff that happens to you, that kind of thing. And it was supposed to be shameful, and animals would come in, you know. And, uh, and so this guy, he knows that. And he also knows that asking for his body is kind of something that family members do. And sometimes they'll be merciful to family members and stuff like that. But... You don't show up as a random guy and go, hey, you know what? I was just thinking maybe, you know, like we could miss this entirely culturally. 
This was a big deal. He stepped out of line with his group and said, you know what? I would like to give him a proper burial, and more than likely, in the tomb that I bought for my, like I've got ready for my own self. Because you don't just have tombs, you know what I mean? Like, oh, I'll go to the tomb store and buy one. You know, it doesn't, doesn't work that way. Like, yeah, I kind of had things worked out a little bit. And it wasn't, it wasn't cheap. So this guy, he's, the, the, the Roman centurion from not Israel understands this is the son of God. The women at a distance, they said, we've been following him. We've seen what he's done. He's the son of God. And then here's one religious authority, a, a wealthy man, a powerful man who says, you know what? I, I can't say everything maybe he thought, but he's like, he needs to be buried properly. It says he was waiting. He's a prominent member of the council who is himself waiting on the kingdom of God. And I don't know. You have to get a little fill in the blank there. Maybe he was like, I thought this was the guy. Maybe he's, or maybe he's like, I still think he was. I, I, you know, maybe he just doesn't know, but he can't let him be left there. He's like, I can't leave him here. I'm going to put him in my tomb at what might cost me my life. Because I could step out here and they'll say, oh, you th you're one of his followers? Well, you know where you belong. Remember that take up your cross and follow me thing? He was crossing that line. He's like, I'm going to step out and align myself with Jesus. I'm going to do that. And the only thing he knew to do was to bury him, to give him the best of the things he had. And you remember when Jesus encountered the rich young ruler, and he's like, all you got to do is give all you have and come follow me. This guy did that. And here's an example. And like Craig Keener helped me see that like in Isaiah, which one is it? Isaiah 53, it talks about the rich coming and, you know, and it's like, it's happening. He's giving, he's giving him everything. He knew it might cost him his life. I never picked up on all this. When God gives the Israelites in the book of Exodus, you remember we talked so much about bearing his name in vain. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. It's not meaning don't cuss, which is not something we should do anyway, but like, He's not saying that. It's saying don't take his name on yourself in vain. Don't claim to follow him and act like you don't. Don't do that. It's a big deal, and it really makes God up. He doesn't like that. This guy, by asking for his body, saying, I come alongside him. I don't know to what level. Maybe he didn't know to what level. He's like, I come alongside him. I'll take responsibility. I want, I want to be in his presence even now. I don't know. You don't want to add too much to it, but you see my point. I'm going to read this in closing. This is Psalm 22. The one that Jesus quotes, the one that Jesus says on the cross, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he cries out and he's talking about this is what Jesus is experiencing, and this is what he's doing. But then it talks about what happens at the end. And I'll, I'll narrate that when I get there. It starts with this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, I find no rest. How many of y'all been there? I've been there. I mean, we like, how many of y'all been there? Yet you are enthroned as, as the Holy One. You 
are the one Israel praises. Remember the truth, but it doesn't feel like it. Does this feel true? In your ancestors, in you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted you and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. That's how Jesus was treated. He was despised by everyone. And they were representative of all of us. We can't wash our hands of it. Well, I wasn't there. I wasn't there all those years. Like, they were acting on our behalf. We would have done the same thing. He was despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults and shake their fists, just like we read. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. This was written hundreds of years before what Jesus went through. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. You know, God, prove it. Do the thing I think, you know, if you're going to save, your, save yourself, then. Can't even save yourself, are you going to save us? Yet, you brought me out of the womb. Which we're going to discuss that when we get to Christmas. God, you brought me out of the womb. You made me, tr you made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. There's no one left. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey and open their mouths wide against me. I poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot shard. Pot shard yeah. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay, you lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display, and the people stare and gloat over me. People, humankind, sons of Adam, stare and gloat. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of lions and save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. And here, For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. Like the centurion, all the families, all the families from all the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth, of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot 
keep themselves alive. <laughs> Posterity will serve him. And like this, this is talking about us. Now, future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. He's done it. He's done it. Let's stand. I'm going to pray. Jesus, we know that you have done it. We know that you have set us free. We know that you have done what is needed to forgive us of sin, to restore us with life everlasting, to make the wrong things right in this world. We know that you have done it. Lord, I pray that we can be people who align ourselves with you, who declare rightly that you are the Son of God, and who give up our lives to bear your name. And Father, I pray that the freedom and the love and the restoration and the communion that you've come to give to us would be evident in this place as we pray and stand before you and sing this song. In Jesus' name, amen. If you want to come.